This is a Federal News Network podcast. Budget reconciliation, administration nominations, and the looming appropriations deadline to get past the long-continuing resolution. Those are all on the table for Congress, but both chambers are in recess this week. We get more from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. So, Lauren, does that mean nothing gets done, or can things move along this week under the surface? I think things will continue under the surface, and leaders will be talking throughout this week to figure out how to move forward on all those issues you just mentioned. Top of mind, of course, is this annual spending bill process that has been stalled for most of the fiscal year already. We are on our second continuing resolution. This one goes till February 18th. They need to make some progress on this, either with another short-term continuing resolution or the preference would be a spending bill that wraps the 12 regular bills together. Uh, So there were talks the last couple of weeks when members were in town, and those will undoubtedly continue. Yes, because this has been going on now at a low level, I guess, for a couple of weeks now, this idea of, you would call that an omnibus? That's right, an omnibus or maybe minibuses, as they like to call them, with smaller packages of bills, depending on what makes sense as those talks come to a conclusion. But most of the discussion has been with the big four, as they're known. That's the chairman and the ranking member of the House and Senate Appropriations Committee. So last week, for example, we had Patrick Leahy, who's the Democratic chairman in the Senate, and Richard Shelby, who's the Republican ranking member, both say that they're making some progress and that there's some talks. Leahy was much more bullish, thinking maybe they'd have an omnibus uh, a few days after they get back on January 31st. Shelby wasn't sure if that deadline was doable. Um, We haven't heard as much publicly from Rosa DeLauro and Kay Granger. Those are the House chairman and ranking member. But, you know, they're pretty key to this and they have some big picture things to work out and then some smaller items to work out. Um, Tends to be if the bigger things get solved, then the smaller things might resolve themselves as well. But um, a, a few things to work through, including, you know, the big one is how much to spend in total, how much to spend on the 12 bills, and then what rides along with the legislation when you're at that point. Is there anything that that could tilt this into a shutdown situation, such as attaching Supreme Court packing to the appropriations bill. I mean, there's always something. And and one thing to remember, as we focused last week on the Senate's rules and how many votes it takes to do something, this spending package needs the support of Republicans to get through the Senate, whether it's a, another continuing resolution or it's an omnibus or a minibus, because it would take 60 votes to cut off debate if you needed to do that. So Republicans do have leverage here. They can hold up this package if they don't like elements that are in it or if it's missing something they really want. Um, I think shutdowns are not popular most of the time. I I don't know that that's where we're headed. Obviously, with funding expiring, that is the natural course of events unless something else is signed into law. But they seem to be wanting to avoid that and have even, you know, it's even been said if they need more time in an omnibus to process it through the two chambers, there could be a continuing resolution to give them a few days or a week or whatever wiggle room. The ultimate fallback beyond that is the year-long CR, although we've seen a pressure campaign this year to avoid that, including a hearing from House appropriators where they heard from the Defense Department and all the bad things that the Defense Department says would occur if there isn't an adjustment to reflect the Biden budget priorities and things like the NDAA that were signed into law. I guess if there was a short shutdown, then Verizon and AT&T could turn on the 5G ones, antennas right near the airport and get away with it. There's nobody there to watch. But that's a, a long shot, I suppose. What about the budget reconciliation bill? What's going on there? And uh, there's talk of, you know, that getting some of the seemingly doomed build back better chunks into that. 
the budget reconciliation bill to me is still alive. And the reason it is, is because unlike the spending bill that you need 60 votes for, you only need 50 votes for this reconciliation bill because of the process they're using for it. That's a really attractive vehicle for Democrats who need to get some things across the line this year so they can run on them in the fall. The question is, what will go into that? Um, the large Build Back Better package that we were talking about last year, um, that seems to have faltered. Joe Manchin wasn't on board with that, he said before the holidays. But President Biden in his press conference last week said he hoped chunks of that could move. Now, there's a couple of different things. You could put some of that in the reconciliation bill. You could find things that have more support and move it to a different piece of legislation, um, whatever the case may be. So there, there will continue to be discussions there. I don't think they're going to give up this vehicle, though, because there are a lot of things that they want to do that have budgetary implications that this vehicle is just a, a ripe opportunity to move. Um, you know, the child tax credit is still in the discussion. There are members who want the state and local tax deduction addressed. Um, and then there's the social spending programs and the climate change programs in there. Any of those could be, you know, a pretty big package to put into this legislation and move forward. And Democrats are going to keep up the pressure on that. Um, maybe if it's not the front of mind thing, they're not going to give up on that opportunity. We are speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And nominations, a pretty good few of them got through before this recess. And it looks like the Senate is finally kind of trying to clear that log jam. What can we expect when they do come back? Because they do have to be there for that one. Yes, they have to be here for nominations. Those go through committee and get to the floor. Before leaving for this one-week recess, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, set up votes on a number of nominations, both judicial and, and some executive ones as well, to try and cycle through these votes as they come back. Um, you only need 50 votes for those. Um, once you get cloture on them, it's two hours, then you vote on them. And so it'll probably be a pretty quick process. And they could spend most of the week on that as they talk off the floor about these other issues. But I, I think we'll continue to see when there's not legislation to advance, Chuck Schumer making some dents into these um, different you know, judicial, executive, ambassadorial nominations. There was a big movement before the end of the year to clear the decks of some of those. And some deals were made to let State Department nominees go forward and, and things like that. So well, there's there's the easy way to do these, and then there's the hard way. The hard way is to take up floor time. The easy way is to try to negotiate packages of nominees and move them forward. And that's often going on behind the, the scenes, and we just don't see it until you know they're ready to present it. And what about the nominees for the Merit Systems Protection Board, five years without a quorum and a couple of years with no members at all? What are they saying? Is that on this week's agenda? Those aren't among the ones that Chuck Schumer filed for cloture on or to debate and have votes on on the floor this week. Um, there's kind of a split decision on those. Some of the nominations that were made last year, approved by committee, remain on the Senate calendar, but one of them was returned at the beginning of the year, as many nominees were, um, because the natural state of affairs is nominees that aren't acted on get sent back, but there's always a deal to keep some on the calendar. So um, there's kind of a split decision on those. The the person who would be the chairman and a member of that board was sent back to the White House, and the White House has already sent her back. So um, there could be more committee work on that and then come to the floor. So it remains to be seen how quickly they'll act on that, or will they wait to get the, the chairwoman out of committee and then go from there? So that's one of those that's kind of in this betwixt and between state for that board, which I know has been without a quorum, as you said, for a long time. And competitiveness legislation, which has cleared the Senate. Is there a House version going on there? 
There has been one under development for some time, and Nancy Pelosi said at a press conference last week that she thinks the House will have its version soon. The bill that came out of the Senate last year had a number of different provisions. It's focused on, you know, competing with China and shoring up the supply chain, which has become an even deeper issue over the last few months since the Senate acted. The House has been working through its committees to try and come up with counterparts, and we may see a version of that in the near future that the House could maybe pass or then take to talks with the Senate to try and get a final version of that. That was something that was in the mix in NDAA last year, but they decided to pull it out of that process and look for something this year. But that, that could be a big bipartisan agreement if they got that, because things like $52 billion for semiconductors, which is what the Senate signed off on, is something that could get a lot of bipartisan support and move forward, either as part of that package or maybe get tacked onto one of these other vehicles. So that's very much alive. Um, we're waiting to see what the details are, though. Lauren Duggan is Deputy New Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.